Welcome to the Fitnatics. I'm here with Justine Feidelson, who is the founder of Resilient Coaching, or excuse me, Resilient Warrior Coaching, and also a CRPS chronic pain specialist. Welcome, Justine. Thank you, Susie. I really, really appreciate you having me, and I'm super excited to be here today. Oh, I am super excited to have you. I know that you're going to bring us a, a plethora of information that we can use and apply into our own lives. And let's just start off by, you know, sharing with us, what is CRPS? Diving in deep fast. All right. We are. CRPS. We are. It is short because otherwise it's a mouthful. Complex regional pain syndrome is the disease itself. Um, it's a, not my first rodeo with chronic pain and illness. I had a, quite a saga before with a brain injury, but we'll touch on that. But as far as CRPS itself, it's essentially a neuroinflammatory disease, right? Swelling of the brain with a very strong autoimmune component. So that's where you get swelling in the limb uh, or whatever the affected limb is. So it's not an autoimmune disease. It's labeled often as a chronic pain syndrome, but it's, it's not just chronic pain. It's just that the symptoms are very painful. Um, but there is this autoimmune inflammatory component. There's this neurological progression of it becoming very difficult to activate and engage certain muscles. And they just don't understand what causes the disease, how the progression occurs. And when there's no target for an illness and you don't understand what causes it, right? What mechanisms are at play? It's very hard to treat. So it's rare, it's poorly understood, uh, and it's excruciating. And there's not good treatment options for it, which makes it very challenging to deal with long term. So what it, how did you come across CRPS? How are you involved with it now? And how are you a pain specialist for CRPS? Yeah, uh, what's really interesting about CRPS is it can seem like it's this out of the blue, out of nowhere, sudden, you know, crazy response to a small or even no injury. Right. For me. I had a tibia fracture as I started walking and jogging more a bit after my brain injury. Uh, I started having really extreme pain in my lower left leg. But what's interesting about CRPS is for a lot of this, there's this previous disease history of sort of an inflammatory state. And whether it's like because of, for me, the brain injury, for others, it's Lyme disease, lupus, right? There's other sort of coexisting conditions that are often at play. So it's rarely as simple as like, you just got CRPS completely for no reason. But these, pre these pre-existing things you often don't realize until then you're dealing with CRPS at times. So for me, I'm unsure whether bone loss, which the disease can cause, played a role in that fracture. So it already developed previous to the fracture or did the fracture cause the CRPS? Was that the trigger? for then that over response. Because what happens is basically the communication between your brain and your limb is altered. So your limb is telling your brain, injury, emergency, send help, right? That's what a, a inflammatory response is. And your brain is doing that, but your leg is no longer injured. It's not technically injured often. It's, it's wow. stuck like that and it thinks it is still crying out for help. And so the brain is sending the wrong immune response in response to a perceived injury, essentially. And you get stuck like that in a hypersensitized, highly stressed, sympathetic state, right? When your nervous system is like red alarm, fight or flight, danger. That's what happens at the core of CRPS. So it's neurological 
And that's what makes it really hard to understand and manage. Wow. Yeah. How long had it been since you had the fracture in the tibia before you were diagnosed with the CRPS? That's a really good question, Susie, because I was actually one of the lucky ones who it only took eight months. It seems like forever. Eight months is an excruciatingly long time when it feels like your limb is going to explode. There's crazy pressure. The swelling is unbelievable. They're bruising, tingling, burning. It feels like your bones are aching, aching, like deep in a way I can't explain. It feels like your muscles are tearing, splitting. There's tingling. It feels like electrocution at times. That's what happened to me after I got immobilized in a boot. Essentially, these other sensations, that's what neuropathic pain is, right? It's not the typical pain people, most people are familiar with. So CRPS is like an extreme form of neuropathic centralized sensitization, sort of. So the symptoms are very different than what you would typically feel from an injury as it mm -hmm. progresses. Uh, and for me, you know, eight months for others, I've heard averages of up to like, typically like four to eight years. It's many years often by the time people get diagnosed. And unfortunately, if you get diagnosed with this after already having symptoms for a year, it's very hard to get it to regress. And those are the folks, that's the bucket of people who sort of get stuck with this being an extremely debilitating, hard to manage disease. Whereas for other folks, it can kind of clear up and it's like this weird thing that happened in their 20s after an injury and it went away because they got treatment early and, you know, you don't have with some people so much trauma, stress, other pre-existing nervous system factors that make it like, like fuel to the fire than when this develops. So the connection between trauma, stress, pain, they're inextricable. And with a disease like this, you just can't get away with a lot of the things that previous to it, we don't know any better, right? We live in a highly stressed state. We're in a go, go, go society. And suddenly your body no longer functions the way that it used to for you. So it's very challenging so during, to live with. During that eight month, how, <laughs> at what point in time were you thinking, okay, this is a tibia thing. And then month two, <laughs> month three, you're thinking this should have already healed. You know, totally. we made some progress. What is this process like for you physically, but more so mentally? Yeah, that's what's really hard with CRPS patients is you get very isolated, right? It's an invisible illness also in a lot of ways. So as painful as it is, mm. yes, when there's acute episodes and there's swelling and redness and uh, bruising and you can see it, fine. But typically and often, and especially compared to how painful it is, it's largely invisible. Um, and so it makes it very hard to bear weight. People limb guard, essentially more and more you learn. And that's what happened to me is just shifting weight. I basically lived on one leg. I used crutches. I, and then over time you realize, oh my God, this is not a good strategy either because the bone disease, the bone loss, muscle wasting compensations up the chain, of course, just get worse and worse. But the challenge is, is at the beginning, you sort of, you get, you make your stop in with an orthopedist. You end up, oh God, it took me a while to get, uh, to a chronic pain specialist, it's only once you're diagnosed that you can at least hopefully get uh, in the right hands of someone who is looking at this, not as an acute orthopedic injury any longer, but a system wide, right? right a, uh, a nervous system issue at this point. And when chronic pain becomes chronic, right? Once pain is chronic, it's, it is more than just the site of injury. It's right. a learned sort of ingrained, not because it's our fault, but that's how our nervous system and our brain works. And it's constantly assessing for threat. 
and danger. <laughs> That's its job, right? Keep us alive. <laughs> so mm-hmm. That's where then at that point, once I was diagnosed, I was like, wow, if there's no cures and there's not great treatments. And at that point I had gone through sympathetic lumbar injections. I tried medications. Um, I, because of going through this, the brain injury for nine years prior and being on over a hundred drugs, um, I did ECT. I was very sick. I was very sedentary. And I essentially didn't want to make the same, not mistakes because it was the best I could do, but like the Mm -hmm. same approach with a different situation equally as horrific, but for a different reason. So movement became what I was obsessed with. I was like, how am I going to use movement and that to change the stress response and to change the way my nervous system is assessing and responding to what it perceives as threat? Like with this disease, everything, standing, wind, right? Allodynia, the skin sensitivity that you get, anything that touches you uh, is very painful. So it's very hard to use movement because it's the thing that is most triggering for symptoms often. Mm-hmm. Wow. wow. But that's so the key. In this, in this, and we're going to definitely get to the movement part yeah. um, a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about this background. You said um, you had brain injury and that situation. So eight years later is when you did experience the trauma to uh, the tibia. Right. And in that process, Justine, there was no, in your mind at that time, there was no connection between the brain and the yeah. And as you said earlier, we don't know if it really truly one caused the other or vice versa or independent of one another. Yeah. Um, what happened? What happened uh, with the brain injury? I was hit on the freeway five months after graduating college. So a guy just nodded out at the wheel. And unfortunately, it was the last year that Honda Civics didn't have side airbags. So my head knocked out the side window when I went 180 degrees across the two lanes and hit the you know median divider. So it took me nine years. You know, I was an outpatient speech therapy, rehab outpatient. I couldn't, you know, I, I still have a lot of memory loss and a lot of chapters and periods of my life that because of the injury and medications, I just don't remember, but it is ingrained in who I am and my experience. And that's why then when the CRPS developed, it was unfortunately, uh, in a way, the, not, not the best thing that could have happened to me, but it forced me to try to learn how to develop skills that until then I couldn't, and I didn't have the opportunity to, cause I was so sick with a brain injury and I was not independent in any way, shape or form. But right as I had developed the CRPS, I was starting to really fight for those things, right? And think that those things were more possible. And so then it just became a matter of, oh, how do I learn how to cook or educate myself or do all these other things or shower or take care of myself, self-care, right? On one leg. And to me, having who I was is much back, is much more helpful and significant than dealing with a messed up part of my body, right? That's not who I am. Like my leg is a part of me. My body period is not who I am. But when I didn't have my brain and I didn't know who I loved or why or couldn't remember, you know, college and high school and my basketball career and my friendships and my relationships, that's very lonely. Right. And so I relate to and I understand what a lot of CRPS patients go through because it's essentially what I lived through with the brain injury prior trying to get better with that. Right. Very heavily medicated, terrible insomnia very severe GI problems. I got up to 170 pounds plus I got down to 110 um, when I couldn't eat anything, couldn't drink. And that is the point at which CRPS developed. So I was not fit and strong when this disease, you know, took hold of me. I 
fought to gain that with this illness because it's kind of all I knew as a functioning adult, right? And trying to be that. So it was very difficult, but um, it gave me purpose, right? In that period. Mm -hmm. When you started after the tibia injury and you started the process, the eight month process to the point where you were officially diagnosed, um, you're seeing pain management doctors. I'm assuming you're seeing who ultimately makes the diagnosis for something like that. Is it a neurologist or is? Yeah, often so it, people either end up in neurology or in chronic pain. Anesthesiologists that will do rotations in chronic pain are often who you'll end up with. Uh, it was funny, and this happens often where it was the bone scan that revealed already bone loss and remodeling in my left leg, mm-hmm. which is what then made me think this has to be CRPS. Cause at that point I'd been like, is it compartment syndrome? Is it an osteochondral defect? Is I'm like researching all like, what is happening to my leg? Right. And no one mm-hmm. can give me answers. Um, and I was going to physical therapy, you know, for months and months, they couldn't identify it. So if anyone earlier in the journey would have been like, oh my God, that's CRPS. I may be in a, I could have been in a different spot. Right. But it was sort of too little, too late by the time then with that bone scan, I was like, I could put the whole picture together with all of the yeah. pre-existing symptoms that you can't test for. There aren't tests to be like, oh, I did this blood test and I have CRPS, or I took this exam and I have CRPS. It's a combination of what the patient reports, what the doctor observes, and sort of the clinical history, which is muddy, right? And it made it hard to wow. diagnose for me with because of the brain injury, because I was on so many drugs and we thought it must be some weird, the bone loss too, some side effect from right long-term this or long-term that. And it wasn't, it was a different disease completely. Other than the, the PT, what type of treatments or what type of therapies um, did you experience? Did you try? Did you, you know? Yeah, I used gabapentin as far as medication. That's kind of a classic, mm-hmm. pretty uh, benign nerve pain medication. Um, sympathetic lumbar injections are one of the earlier things that I tried. I did a couple rounds of that where they basically block, right? That kind of communication between Mm -hmm. brain, spinal cord, and limb. So where they put it in your spinal cord corresponds to where then you would get the relief, so to speak, in your body. Mm -hmm. But just like with drugs, you build up tolerance to those types of things as well. Mm -hmm. And so they can become less effective each time. And so eventually I worked my way up to what is called a spinal cord stimulator, where they implant, it's like a pacemaker Mm a little bit, and they implant a battery. It's about, eh, it's not huge, but it's like, it's large enough. And then there's a wire that goes to my spinal cord with two leads, like electrodes that send signals at L4 and S1 for me that interrupt this super highway, right? Between brain and leg, yeah. leg and brain. So it's not a cure, doesn't make it go away. I always feel my leg, it's still hard to bear weight. I still have probably 40, 50% of the symptoms and what I live with, but it's not a nine, 10, 11, 12 out of 10. It's a four to seven kind of oscillating situation on a pain scale, as opposed to intolerable, unbearable, cannot live. Right. And then you have to how do all the have, other things that help. How long would the, uh, um, how long have you had the uh, pain, uh, stimulator? stimulator? Two stimulator. years. You're fine. Two, Two years. years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been the most effective treatment for me. It's just a tool though. It's just like all the other things that we work on sleep, stress, fuel, mindfulness, like all the other things that also affect the output of pain. So when you think something like this is going to cure you or going to be a miracle, you know, people have rude awakenings as to how much is still on us to manage pain. So that's what I 
basically realize no one is helping other people like myself do, and certainly not from a movement perspective. What do you do once you've exhausted medical options or you don't want to try some of these very invasive, risky with this mm -hmm. disease surgeries? Mm -hmm. And you're giving individuals that opportunity to explore what those options and opportunities are through your coaching, yeah. through your experience. Yeah. And people aren't really aware. You feel very helpless and powerless in a situation like this, right? The pain is excruciating and you sort of expect that equally as dramatic of an intervention must be utilized to give you relief. It's like kind of just how we're taught, how we think. And uh, that's what contributes a lot though to the helplessness and despair and the isolation. And, you know, it's called the suicide disease because it's not the disease itself that will kill you. It's just people get to a point that they can't live like this anymore. and so. If you don't feel like you have any agency in your experience, you will feel helpless. Um, but you can, if you start to embrace the ways that you do impact your pain, change how you're experiencing that. And being at a six versus a nine is a big deal when you are in that state all the time, right? Justine, I, I wish you could say exactly what you said all over again, because that is very significant for individuals that are living with pain, whether it's CRPS right. or other yeah. diseases or injuries Chronic. that, yes, it can uh, definitely take a hold of you. But if we're talking a nine and 10 versus a six or seven, that is significant to someone who is, you know, constantly in a nine, 10. Right. Um, it's just so important. It may not seem as a big deal, but it very much so is in terms of your outlook on life, your yeah. feelings, your emotions, your social environment, all of that. Mind, body. That, exactly. Exactly. Um, so let me ask you this. Growing up, did you always want to own your own fitness, health and fitness company, as well as be a, pain, oh. uh, a chronic pain specialist? My whole life. All I ever wanted to do. No, it was, <laughs> it was not. This was not my plan. Actually, it's kind of funny. I went to call my degree is in marketing. So my background actually is in business, um, but everything changed when I had the accident four months after graduating, right? So I never got to really experience or explore that career path. I was an athlete my whole life prior. I played basketball yeah. growing up. I was a four-year varsity player in high school. I should have, I regret not playing in college to a degree, but um, that was always a big part of who I was and then not getting to express that over all the years with the brain injury was a big part of why I lost a lot of who I was and my sense of self. And so I think the brain injury prepared me in a way I could have never imagined for this situation because it made me think things were possible that I otherwise would have not, I think, thought were possible because I was so determined to not stay like that, you know, even if it was a different challenge. So a lot of the things I didn't get to do earlier are actually, I think, why then, as scary as it was, like, I wanted to make this my life now um, because I also wanted, like, I was like, how will I survive? How will I create enough meaning and purpose that this is worth it for me? Because that's what's really hard when you're in this much pain is how do you create enough joy to mm -hmm. make up for it, like counterbalance it away? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I, um, I've shared before, Justine, certainly not in comparison to your experience, but similar in the sense yes. of having an experience where your life does change. You know, I was involved in a car accident, yeah. you know, and having back surgery, double fusion in my back Oof. and, you know, 
physically, yes, you have, we have, you know, the pains and the strains and all that. But I've always felt that that situation mentally was so much more uh, powerful and impactful. And I, I, at that time, I always said, oh, that was the worst thing that happened to me. But looking back, Justine, that was the best thing that happened to me. Yeah. Um, it, it just brought another level, as I can hear from you, uh, of just an understanding, uh, compassion, empathy, empowerment, uh, education, because you get this passion where, like you said, you, you're researching, you're, you know, you're putting the work in, and you know from the perspective of the other individuals that you work with and coach, what they're going through because you've right. been there and sometimes you've actually are still in there in some, in some moments of time. Yeah. And who better, right. Who better some, to work with is someone who has an understanding of what you're going through and can identify with that. Yeah. Um, so I really have to say that I applaud you for that because, you know, making that a mission and a purpose and not only helping yourself, but taking that and helping others that are going through that um, experience in their yeah. life, which is significant. Yeah. I mean, 200,000 people in the U.S. and Canada is not a lot, but it's a lot. It's right. That's basically how many people have lived with CRPS currently. So it's a rare disease. Right. But it's like if one percent even of those people are willing to try and to see what they can do if they take control of all these parts of their life that they sort of gave up. Because um, if you think about it, if a healthy person sort of adopted the habits that a chronically ill person rightfully so slips into with like one meal a day, in bed all the time, in bed all day, no stress management, right? Isolated, depressed, anxious. I mean, you will develop all sorts of problems. And then all of those get blamed on the disease, which it's actually not. It's a function of your behavior, right? Even though it's not your fault that the disease is making it so challenging, you have to take some accountability over what you control and just deciphering. I don't control this, but I do control this. And I'm going to do my best with the bucket that I do control. And then you have more peace with the stuff you don't too, because right? it's not like everything. Right. Ultimately, it's going to be some things that you're able to do and explore. And I think a lot of times just people, because they get in that mode of just, you know, frustration, disappointment, sorrow, all of those things that yeah, we grief. just start getting deeper in this blackness and forget that there are things that we can do, small things that are going to be right. very meaningful. Right. And part of the challenge is we live in a culture that heavily values productivity, Right. <laughs> that's how we value ourselves. So when those roles and those things that we used to do change and society doesn't do a wonderful job in America of sort of helping those of us that have to change the way that we would be quote unquote productive, that mm -hmm. makes it really hard too, right? So there's yeah. a lot that goes into changing if you even feel like you're worth it and like you can develop other ways of feeling better about yourself and feeling capable. Well one of the the main reasons I really was, you know, excited about interviewing you and getting hearing about your story and sharing your stories with others um, was not necessarily specifically the CRPS, which I know that you know is part of the story, but it was this pain, chronic pain management, right? right. Uh, because someone, as we talked about, you know, may not be diagnosed with CRPS, but still has other varying diseases or situations where yeah. they are dealing with chronic pain too, uh, as well. Exactly, and it. That process for dealing with chronic pain that you're going to share with us, um, that you work with your clients, can be applied to anyone who is dealing with chronic pain. And that, from that perspective, I feel that there's a ton to gain. So let's get into that. Yeah. Let's what do it. have you found? Yeah. What have you found, or, or what, with your clients? What has been the most effective 
form of managing uh, chronic pain for them and for yourself as well? Yeah. Well, the most important thing I think is to realize that pain science can come across very offensive if you live in constant chronic pain with a severe disease where it's like it's in your head, your mind is like a part of it. And it's like, no, it's structural. It's because of a thing. It's not, you know, me, but pain is complex, right? Psychosocial, biomedical model. Like there's all these pieces that are a part of how we experience and heighten pain. And when you learn how to analyze your own sort of two concepts I want to touch on, stress, sure. stress bucket, how many stressful things, right, are currently happening in your life, family, finances, are you planning a wedding, <laughs> work, sickness, medical, like complicated relationships, all these things add to your stress bucket, poor nutrition, lack of sleep, bad circadian rhythm, right? It's like up, up, up. And then when you reach for something as, oh, I pulled my back, it wasn't the reach that got you, right? It was the fact that when you reached, you were already, there was like no room in your stress bucket. So, and, but everyone focuses on the reach, right? How could that have yeah. happened? How, why did I do that? What did I do wrong? And no one's looking at like all the other pieces of sort of what accumulated to getting you there. So that's one piece of it is learning how to look at the things that affect pain and optimizing those factors in a way, right? Okay. The other concept I like to teach people who are in chronic pain is the threat bucket, where you basically have to learn to communicate better and understand your nervous system. And our nervous system's job is to keep us safe, is to not let us die, right? So it has, over our entire life's history, accumulated a memory of every single thing that has been painful, traumatic, stressful, right? You tweaked your arm that time you hurt your back when you rolled your ankle a bunch in high school, all these different, even smaller injuries and things add up and accumulate. Um, oh gosh, hold on. Sorry, my phone was on silent. <laughs> started reading yeah, that's fine. Um, and learning how to sometimes change the other pieces that are affecting pain that aren't even the primary syndrome or illness, right? Can also mm -hmm. lower what your brain is constantly scanning as threat. So if you can address some of these even historical or past elements or aspects of like poor mobility, stiffness, any part of your body where there's like ratcheting or right, your brain is going, ah, danger, like stiffness too, is your body trying to create safety. Stiffness is right, sort of what happens. And so you can't affect pain if you never address your nervous system because your nervous system is what amplifies pain. So that's really the key is understanding how to communicate better, decrease the sympathetic, right? That flight or flight, high stress state, and do things that increase the parasympathetic end of your nervous system, mindfulness, breath work, right? Um, anything that slows your heart rate, slowing your breathing is a hack to tell your brain and body, it's okay, it's safe, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to be able to have ways to intervene and retrain how your nervous system has sort of automatically learned to be. And every day you exist, it's another chance to re-pattern, right? Give it different new information that now it's taking in and going, oh no, the last time you did that, it wasn't that horrible, right? Like when you exercised appropriately, you didn't get a 12 out of 10 flare. It was like a six out of 10 and it wasn't wonderful, but it wasn't terrible. And it wasn't as bad as your brain has become accustomed to everything being. And so 
that's sort of what people have to gain skills around and then managing all the pieces of your routine and daily life that affect how recovered, how resilient you're going to feel, right? When you're highly stressed, under-recovered, under-fueled, you're not giving yourself a chance, yeah. right? You're, yeah, you're, you're losing capacity in that stress bucket. So to create capacity in that, those buckets, you have to lower things. And you either do that by addressing pain, stress, other, right? Little knickknack injury types of compensations, length, tension, relationship, stiffness stuff, or it's these other things throughout our day and from our perspective that affect how we feel about and experience pain. With, um, you mentioned breathing, breathing, mm -hmm. meditation, mindfulness. Let's talk a little bit about the breathing. I know that you, uh, not too long ago, held a webinar on uh, breathing, diaphragmatic breathing. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that and how that can be helpful for managing uh, chronic stress. Yeah, diaphragmatic breathing is incredibly important because it, again, it helps to tell our nervous system that it is okay and it is safe. And so learning how to breathe through your nose, right? When people chronically are like, <laughs> mouth breathing, chest breathing, you're not getting any diaphragmatic sort of pump and expansion. And you have to have pressurization of your core and your ribs actually expanding laterally. Your ribs are meant to move. They're not supposed to be stuck and stationary. And when we get in pain and we sit a lot and we get sedentary, right? We get very forward hunched. We kind of get crunched here. We get anteriorly tipped. And that's where then you can develop back pain and all these weird compensations that actually stem from breathing. Mic is coming off because breathing is our most uh, fundamental movement pattern. That's a really good quote I heard and I like a lot. Uh, and so, not only is it a way to build movement safely, but it's a way to on demand at, at any time help bring down your nervous system from a more heightened state to a calmer state, which then will add less fuel to the pain puzzle. Yeah. Right. So, whether it's anxiety, pain, stress being able to intervene and practice and give your brain more doses of that will then translate to it doing it more automatically at rest, which is what we exactly. Yeah. Well said, because yeah. I think a lot of times what people sometimes forget is they feel like, okay, I'm going to, you know, practice this breathing today and okay. You know, they do it and not that much of a difference and oh, it didn't work. Right. right. You know, it didn't work. It's not effective yeah. for me. Right. It didn't work for me. I don't right. Know right. 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 Yeah, and you said something that I think is extremely important is, is the practice. It's something yeah. that we, you know, every day is an opportunity to continue practicing that breathing. And as with time goes on that practice and it becomes automatic. Right. Yep. Yeah. Three times, five minutes a day. That's what I would recommend to anyone starting. So okay. it's, it's like a very Three basic breathing five. program. Five minutes in the morning in bed, five minutes in bed at night. Those ones are gimmies. You're already in bed. You don't even have to like, right, remember. And then sometime during the day when you feel more heightened or just because you are intentionally gaining practice. It's just like working out. If you worked out like one time every five days, you wouldn't gain any motor control. You're right. You have to teach your brain. Mm -hmm. So with that breathing, um, you said three times a day, five minutes each time? Yeah. It's a great benchmark starting okay. point. Okay. And, and then you can uh, progress. Progress. Okay. Got it. breathing through the nose, out through the mouth, breathing through the nose, out through the mouth. What is that? Try what you suggest you recommend. Yeah. At least breathe in through the nose. It's okay if you want to breathe out through the mouth, but breathe in through the nose if you can, because our nose is meant to inhale. Our mouth really is not. You'll learn a lot more about that if you check out the webinar and why. The other important piece, because otherwise I'll, I'll keep Susie forever today. The <laughs> other important piece is to try to breathe out twice as long on your exhale. 
as your inhale. So that will help slow your breathing too, because that is what will then soothe your nervous system. So the more you can trigger parasympathetic, rest and digest, calm, safe, all the automatic, like non-thinking parts of your body, the less sympathetic fight or flight you'll have. And Excellent. breathing is a great Excellent. way to do that. And this is a little bit of a side. I saw that you had posted this uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, um, or not too long ago, with regard to a recent visit to the doctor. Okay. And I, I, it just kind of it struck me. It's not, it's not anything specific to this particular, you know, yeah. podcast that we're talking about. But I just wanted to just share because I think people need to hear it. Um, hear oh. your experience in terms of what happens when you go to the doctor. They just say, I, I don't know how to help you. Yeah. Um, well, it's something that unfortunately, like people with right rare sort of orphan diseases, that's what they're called when they're very uncommon, um, deal with. And so, yeah, I went to, I waited two to three months to get referred to a chronic pain specialist who then, I then waited another two to three months to get into a rheumatologist who he referred me to in order to get a hypermobility related diagnosis diagnosed so that then I could take that information back to him and we could make a plan. Well, instead I go there, right? And the guy's like, I don't, I don't treat this. Like, I don't even know why they send you here, right? There's not even people who specialize really in this because it is such a sort of complex there's a million different subtypes. Um, and so he knew enough to like know what he didn't know. And so I sort of respected that in a way, but there wasn't even much effort in trying, for example, to have someone to refer me to at least, know where to send me, even if it's not what you do, have some information maybe handy for people that continually come across your doorstep if they're being sent there, you know, from that for another department. Um, and so it happens very frequently that people will basically be told, I don't know how to help you, right? This isn't what I do. And I don't know how to send you to, and it's on you to learn about the disease and how to manage it. And in my case, that's one thing where this is my job anyway, yeah. to help people deal with and manage complex rare diseases. And I have the tools and the education in the background to sort of safely do that. But that's not what you would want to do with most right. people. And imagine when people's people are in excruciating pain and they have incredible expectations and hopes tied right on these appointments and in making some breakthroughs that can help them better understand what's happening to their bodies and it's kind of just like sorry good luck yeah it's very deflating for me i'm a, right it's one thing but that's not okay like yeah. <laughs> exactly and, and, and that's why i wanted to bring it up today I yeah just it's really know, sweet of you yeah I feel like you're not the only one. I feel like I've heard that from other my clients yeah. or other situations, but basically they get to the point where they're waiting on these, you know, appointments and they finally get to it and, oh, sorry, you know, yeah. you're going to, I'm going to refer you to someone else. In this case, you know, they may know where to refer them. Right. At least. Yeah. At, yeah. Yeah. But time yeah. is lost, right? It's precious. And again, the quicker you get diagnosed and treated with a lot of things, the more effective the treatments can be. So time is of the yeah. essence. And uh, yeah, this is why, right. When, medical doctors get frustrated when it's like, oh, patients come in acting like they know everything about their disease. It's like, well, because they do. And because you guys don't. And because exactly. you can't, right? And so, right. yeah, people do the best well, they can. I, I just felt like it was important for us to share that because it is, 
for individuals um, feeling as though, you know, there's no recourse. I don't know what's, you know, what's happening to me. I don't know what, right. you know, to continue, not give up. Just like yeah. the resilient warrior coaching. That is where resilient came from. <laughs> we're, we're not going to give up. Yeah. We're not going to give up. We're going to explore. We're going to ask. We're going to talk. We're going to reach out to resources like ourselves, yeah. you know, yeah. different industries. I don't know. I know another coach, another individual that can help and support you. And that's why having this type of community is important. Yeah. And for individuals, you know, who are working with us and, you know, to give them the inspiration support that they need um, as well. And, and to talk about us because there's other people in the community that maybe do not know about the resources and support that we can provide to them. Yeah. And like the, the, all it would take is for doctors to build out a referral network. And it's like, it's one thing to be like, oh yeah, try acupuncture. That can help really. But where, who, what acupuncturist would you recommend? You should have an arsenal, right? Of sort of complementary pieces if you can't help someone or beyond what you can help them. And that's much more common in sort of the health wellness uh, PT space. PTs are more healers than doctors. It's not that doctors don't want to heal, but they do the interventive piece and the healing part is more on you. And I think that's what's hard for patients to understand and rightfully so. We want someone to come and save us. We want it to be easier, softer, you know, not, it's not fair, but it, it doesn't matter. Right. And so you have to be able to exactly. get around people who support you though. You have to be resilient. That's you have it. to be That's a resilient it. warrior. That's, That's it. it is. That's it. Susan. Justine, tell us about how, if someone is interested in uh, getting to that webinar or any other programs that you have upcoming, um, how would we find you? Where do we go? Yeah, I have a couple exciting things coming down the pipeline. As far as my work in general, how I often work with folks is one-on-one -on -one with my individual design program, right? That's where I can take them through things over the course of months and implement my Mars ID method, which is mobility, awareness, recovery, stress, right? Basically the things we've talked about individually designed and progressed over time, you know, with someone in real time with their unique challenges priorities, resources, right? We're all in very different spots with what is around us, what we're capable of. So the one-on-one -on -one program is a, a very, very successful, impactful way that I work with people. And then I've also, you, I, you, you can't just work with people who can afford one-on-one -on -one coaching, right? I wanna be able to give education and resources and access to this information to more people. You can't apply it as individually and with as much handholding for me, but it makes it more accessible, which is the point. Um, so other things that you can get access to besides one-on-one -on -one coaching, all on my website. If you go to www.resilientwarriorcoachingllc.com, put the LLC in there or else you'll end up at a weird love coaching website. Someone took my Resilient Warrior Coaching name before I could. And so I had to add LLC to, <laughs> to get it. So put that in there. And then that's where you can get other things like DIY webinars and masterclasses. I have a masterclass on movement with CRPS. Also that breathing webinar that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And then I'm really excited in October, I'm going to be launching my Pain Academy DIY e-course again. So that's uh, an on-demand email series that gets sent to you and you're able to do over six weeks, an email every three days, four modules. I teach you the Mars ID method in a way that you can implement and have little actionable homework assignments and steps to take in each of those departments, you know, and start to change how recovered and resilient you feel and change the way your nervous system is responding to pain with these habits that we talked about. 
So that's really cool because it's a much more affordable, accessible way for people to get exposed to this information. And, and even if they need more help, at least they can start to go, whoa, there is a lot that I can do, right? And the light bulb goes off and that at least is, is really significant for a lot of people. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Resilient War Coaching, LLC.com. And when we get to the website, also, I would suggest you guys getting on her mailing list, uh, email mail list. So that way, any upcoming programs are going to come through the pipeline. You guys are going to be the first ones to hear about and get access to that. So, yeah. Um, that can be found on your website and can sign up for the email list, correct? Yes, absolutely. That's under the contact page. And then, yeah, next year I'll be doing my group program again, uh, the Energy Solution, which had really, really good results last time because people struggle enormously, right, with sleep. Being able to fall asleep, recovery, energy management, all those sort of daytime and nighttime habits that leave you completely depleted and thrashed. So that's something that even if you don't have CRPS, these things also impact you. Um, and the other sort of exciting thing is I'm almost ready to release the podcast that I've been working on as well with a fellow, my CRPS bestie, uh, Dr. Jill, <laughs> Jill Konowicz, who's a, a rare crossbreed with a doctor and a patient, right? Someone who has their MD, PhD, and then also lives with this disease. So she brings a co very cool complementary perspective kind of on the medical end to my sort of movement health piece, uh, which will also help people understand and gain better education around this disease, how it works, how it impacts you and what you can do. So those awesome. are sort of, yeah, the virtual things in the pipeline. And then otherwise, if anyone lives in San Diego, I will be at the Empower You conference August 25th and 26th at Town and Country in San Diego. I'll be on a patient panel there. Um, and there's going to be a really, really cool two-day agenda of all things sort of chronic pain treatments, uh, other vendors, the places, the companies that develop these technologies like the spinal cord stimulator, right? They have wow. their challenges and their downsides, but they are very important things to at least understand uh, as options for you. And uh, I'm really excited to, to be a part of that because bridging out and working with physicians and helping them also get better results with their patients because what we do is complementary, right? I do what they don't Absolutely. and they do what I don't. Uh, so it helps the patient from both ends. And although I do all my work remotely, that's a really important space to be able to make more to of an get impact. It, to touch, exactly. Make bridge the gap. Impact. Yeah. Bridge the gap mm -hmm. between patients and providers. Right. So congratulations on that opportunity. And once Thanks. again, if anyone's going to be in San Diego, check Justine out. Check it out. Last question. Are you a fit addict? I think I know that. Come on. <laughs> Come on. I wouldn't be here, Susie, if I wasn't uh, a fit Exactly. Addict. Yes. You have to be a fit addict. Uh, how, <laughs> yes. how do you, given, you know, CRPS, how do you stay fit and how do you stay active? Yeah. Desensitization is the name of the game. It's use it or lose it. So the, the, more that you don't do, the more sensitized you become. So it's a challenge between like balance and recovery, not overdoing it, but doing things consistently enough that you are able to sort of minimize the blowback from it. So I do a lot of, of strength work, um, stability work daily, at least. I also have hypermobility. So I have loosey goosey joints. It's a common coexisting condition with EDS. So, I mean, with uh, CRPS, excuse me. So you get a lot of like additional pain, stiffness, it's hard to create stability mm. in certain joints. So corrective mm. exercise, right? Sort of the stuff you would do in PT for us is mm. kind of like brushing your teeth. It's like forever ongoing maintenance. So that's mm -hmm. a daily thing. And then 
yeah, a good long aerobic sesh, I will still always love. Uh, and I walk, I walk daily. I can't walk very far or be on my leg long, but 20 minutes, 2000 steps, I pretty consistently can do. And uh, yeah, so wonderful that's that's the way to avoid atrophy <laughs> keep and we're all getting all right. older so yeah uh, that's right justine I'm, I'm right there with you on that one <laughs> oh, with that being said i definitely want to thank you so much for your time for your information sharing your story which is uh going to have a humongous impact not just on on my viewers and my audience but i know it's going to be shared because it is a powerful story we can all learn from it and i want to thank you justine for that Thank you so much, Susie. I really appreciate you letting me riff a lot today and get into some of the nitty gritty details that I don't know if otherwise people would get exposed to. So I hope everyone could kind of hang in there and, you know, take take things that despite my sort of unique, rare situation apply to them just the same. So please don't get discouraged or think that this isn't relevant, even if you don't live with this disease. That's right, because and we I are appreciate be it. resilient warriors all the way. That's it. That's it. That's <laughs> Thank it. you, Justine. Susie, Thank you everyone. Susie's going to be my hype woman. Sorry. Yeah. Susie's going to be my hype woman. <laughs> I love it. I love it, Justine. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank everyone for joining the Fitnatics. Until next time, keep moving. Thank you.